Welcome along to this special edition of 20 Minute Topic. I'm Marcus Stead. I'm joined as I usually am by veteran campaigner and podcaster and blogger indeed, Greg Lance Watkins. And we're taking a different form on this edition because the news was announced at around about midday on Friday that Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, had died at the age of 99. And I'm particularly glad that Greg is here because we've talked in previous podcasts about Greg's family connections and personal connections with the royal family. He had met Prince Philip, and he's going to tell us a bit about that experience in a moment and put his life and his achievements into context. But Greg, I think we should begin by reflecting on Prince Philip's life and first of all, offering our condolences to Her Majesty the Queen and the royal family and those that were close to him. Indeed, and I think it's very important to point out that as the Queen and, dare I say, mother of the Commonwealth, her consort had played a very special role on a world stage. Well, Prince Philip was born in Corfu in 1921, the fifth and final child and indeed the only son of Prince Andrew of Greece and Denmark and Princess Alice of Battenberg. Philip stated that he thought of himself as Danish and that his family spoke English, French and German. His family were forced to flee Greece after a military coup and he was allowed to sleep on a crate of oranges. Um, the first months and indeed years of his life were absolutely extraordinary, weren't they, Greg? Indeed. Um, well, his birth was fairly extraordinary because although of royal lineage, he was born in effectively wealthy penury on a kitchen table in Corfu. His father shortly after, or round about his birth, was heavily involved with the mistress and abandoned Philip and his four elder sisters and his mother Alice in favour of the mistress and took no part in Philip's life thereafter. And when Philip was eight, his mother was committed to an asylum as a result of paranoid schizophrenia. That's correct. And this had a profound effect on Philip in that well, that's a lot to go through for anyone at that age, isn't it? But he ended up in Germany not long after that, didn't he? How did events, what led to that? Because it's, as I say, it's an extraordinary early life. How did he go from there to Germany? What were the circumstances? Uh, I got the impression, I'm not sure of the detail behind it, but I got the impression that um, he was of an age that uh, he was past around the family and eventually uh, as realistically a well-heeled and well-connected orphan he was found himself in Britain where he was sent to Gordonston School and completed his education at Gordonston before going on to university in Edinburgh. Well, let's talk about Gordonston, because this is something I learned about literally in the last few hours. And it was a new school at the time set up by Jewish people. 
And this was very much a character forming experience for him in terms of the things they did. The school reports say he was uh, mischievous, but not a nasty person as, as a child there. But it was character forming for him in many ways because he learned to stand on his own two feet. And many years later, when particularly when Prince Charles went to school, although it was hard for him to send his own son to boarding school and be away from him for so long, in terms of ch overcoming Charles's shyness, he thought it would be a good experience for him, bearing in mind a life of duty lay ahead. But it's been said in a number of the tributes we've seen in the last few hours that Prince Philip never really left Gordonston in terms of, you know, there's lots of talk about the cold showers and the rowing and the sport, as well as the academic side of the education. This was very much, I think, Greg, a character forming experience for him and something that was to stay with him for the rest of his life. I think it goes further than that in that Han, the headmaster, uh, this was in the formative years of Gordonston and it was still very hands-on to the ethos on which it was founded. Uh, Prince Philip went on uh, to be what was called guardian of the school, uh, which was uh, head of school in his latter last year there. Uh, he was a sportsman. He played in the school cricket, first 11 cricket team. He played a number of sports for the school. He acquitted himself well academically and obviously had very clear standards of ability when it came to leadership, hence being the head boy. Mm. Mm. So he got realistically parenting from this very major and very innovational public school. Yes, and once completed his schooling, I mean, the stories from Gordonston are extraordinary, such as the, um, the sailing expedition to Norway, which has been talked about uh, on the news this evening, but all sorts of extraordinary things happened there. And then he went um, to Dartmouth Naval College and he was asked to escort a royal tour, the king and his daughters. And he met a young Princess Elizabeth who would years later become his wife. But World War II started just six weeks later. And this was, again, he'd had so many character forming experiences. This was the start of yet another one. And what he experienced during the course of the war, he was mentioned in dispatches for his service during the Battle of Cape Matapan, in which he controlled the battleship searchlights. He was also awarded the Greek War Cross. In June 1942, he was appointed to the V&W class destroyer and flotilla leader HMS Wallace, which was involved in convoy escort tasks on the east coast of Britain, as well as the Allied invasion of Sicily he became the youngest officer in the Royal Navy to be made first lieutenant. And again, Greg, those experiences he had during the war, this wasn't a man who settled for the cosy option. He put himself on the front line. He would have lost friends and good people. Extraordinarily brave, wasn't he? I gather also that he inspired courage amongst his own men and was very much 
hands-on and prepared to work with anybody on his ship of any rank. If it was a stoker with a problem, he would help them. And he commanded tremendous respect from uh, his crew. And in the landings of Sicily, uh, it is reported that it was his quick eye and iron command of the vessel that saved it. And he saved the life of every member of that crew. Yes, because the consensus seems to be among those who served with him of any rank. He could be a tough guy to be under the command of, but they really did like being under his command because of the respect in which they held him and his willingness to help them. So it, the respect worked both ways. He earned their respect and they honoured that in the way they served him. And as you say, his judgment proved to be very, very sound, even at such a young age as he would have been at the time, because he would have been, what, only in his early to mid-20s at that particular time. And he stayed in touch with the young Princess Elizabeth during the, the war by writing letters. Now, for those particularly, I mean, I'm 37, you're 75. For those particularly listening who are younger than me, those who may be listening in their teens or in their 20s, who don't remember a world before the internet. I mean, I can remember a world before the internet and you certainly can, but I, you know, the age of modern communication where at our fingertips, we've got WhatsApp, text messages, emails, all manner of apps, Facebook, social media, you name it. I can remember the time when the world was a little bit slower in so far as you had to rely on a phone call. But going back to this era, yes, there were, uh, phones in existence but this was wartime and it, it you know you couldn't there were no mobile phones on the um the navy ships or anything like that if you wanted to stay in touch with people letters were the only realistic way of doing it and prince uh, philip um as we, as we were later to call him and the young princess elizabeth would write letters to one another but he would be writing these letters not knowing if he was going to be blown out of the sea the very next day and she even at that age would have been very much aware um, that, you know, she may never see him again through no fault of his own. So this would have been a tremendous burden in, in some ways for two young people in love to uh, keep things going during those war years. It would have been very, very hard for them. Very hard for us to comprehend, I think, Greg. Indeed. Um, I, as you say, uh, probably a little more in touch with it in that... Um, both my parents were born in the same year as Prince Philip. They were both born in, all three of them were born in 1921. And it's a sobering thought to me uh, that my parents would also have been 100 this year had they survived. Mm. And also Princess Elizabeth and Philip married when I was a year and 10 months old in 1947, shortly after the war, um, dare I say also, just to reassure people, uh, a, a few years after my parents had married. Mm. Mm. So I can comprehend these dates and many of the aspects of this time. But it was not until 
the 1960s that I had the good fortune only on one occasion to meet Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, uh, at a private function, a marriage of somebody who had, who had for a period been a girlfriend of mine at St. James's Palace. And it was a very brief meeting. Um, he shook hands and uh, was informally introduced to me. Uh, we spoke for all of 30 seconds, uh, but it was a fairly crowded event. But as quite a youngster at the time, he very much put me at ease. Um, and he did not interrupt on the conversations um, that I was involved with, with other members of the family at the time. Mm. Yes, yes. So that was an experience that stayed with you. And we'll talk about his life in service when we get to that. But the war came to an end. And he and Elizabeth had been in touch with each other throughout. The Queen Mother wasn't sure about him at first. Who was he? Who were his parents? Although, Greg, it is true to say, isn't it? Am I right in saying they're both great grandchildren of Queen Victoria? I believe that they are, um, but I'm not sure of the direct lineage. Yes, um, they're distantly related believe, to each other. I believe that is through George the First of Greece. Yes, that, that would make sense. Uh, but to begin with, as I say, the Queen Mother wasn't sure what to make of this chap because he wasn't from, you know, British royal stock, so to speak, and didn't quite know what to make of it. But um, Princess Elizabeth, as a young lady or young girl, young lady, was very committed to him, him, it seemed, and they got engaged in 1947. And in the gloom of post-war Britain, the wedding was a cause for celebration in the country because although the war was won in 1945, the process of piecing the country back together, there was not much money around. Rationing was a reality for some years afterwards, certainly into the early 1950s. There were lots of bomb sites everywhere. There was not much money to repair anything. So life was still hard in this country and their engagement was a cause for celebration. And um, when they started a family, they got married. Um, Princess Anne describes him during their, their, their childhood as a fun parent to have around. He'd spend time with the children where he could. But this was, he knew he was, his, his naval career continued, but he knew he was signing up for a life of duty and service. As I say, he remained in the Navy. He was posted to Malta, and he and the Queen at that time, um, immediately before, immediately after their marriage, were it, it, they could enjoy quite a, a certain level of freedom to uh, just be a young couple together in Malta. But then when the Queen's father, the King, fell ill in 1952, they were beginning a tour of the Commonwealth. Everything changed. King George VI had died. Elizabeth and Philip were in a hunting lodge in Kenya and they were difficult to contact. And I think I'm right in saying it was Philip who broke the news to the Queen of her father's death. And that's OK. He had been unwell for a period. But in terms of their lives, it had changed forever. Prince Philip could 
realistically have expected another 10 years of living the sort of life he had in Malta and who knows, quite possibly rising to the very top of the Navy, the Royal Navy. But from that moment on, their lives had changed forever. His military days were coming to an end. This was now a life of duty and service. I think that would have been very hard for him, Greg. Indeed, but something that um, we tend to overlook now, Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mother, did have a certain amount of uh, family reassurance about Philip because Louis Mountbatten, Lord Mountbatten, was a cross between a cousin and a surrogate brother uh, and knew Prince Philip in the Navy. So there was a great deal of reassurance minded that uh, he then went uh, on effectively royal duty to India with the charged with the responsibility of independence of India after the drawing up of the new Indian constitution. Mm. So there were already regal connections and regal duties beginning to cut in but it would have come as a shock to them to suddenly be thrust into royal duties by the death of George the sixth mm. which although expected was not expected that soon and there was I understand a certain amount of resentment that Philip could no longer continue to serve in the Navy, which had suited his character down to the ground. Oh, it had, it had, because he was a masculine man. And from this point onward, he was, what, two steps behind his wife everywhere they went. He would have found that difficult. But from the time of the coronation in 1953, we began, even at that stage, to see signs of how he wished to modernise the royal family and make them relevant to the new world that was emerging in terms of there was a lot of pressure should the coronation be televised shouldn't it be and Peter Dimock at the BBC um, was very much in favour and he ultimately oversaw and directed the coverage of the coronation but it was Philip who really pushed for it to be televised and to bring the people in and to give them a level of access to the royal family um, that they didn't have before some of the mystique was lost but it is also a way of using the fast moving modern communications to connect the royal family to the people um so that was that we'll talk more about his modernizing instincts as we go on here but there's some sort of controversy or uh, there's certainly a big issue at the time the children as they were born uh, that would be charles andrew anne and edward they took the name Windsor rather than Mountbatten, and that was a big issue at the time, wasn't it? It was a big issue, but he was, although you mentioned Anne's comments about him being great fun to have around, he was also a very strict disciplinarian with his children, mm. and on... Uh, a couple of occasions reduced Charles to tears. Why was that? Why was that? 
public by reprimanding him for not doing something as he should have done. It was part of Prince Philip's upbringing to toughen up the children for the great duties that lay ahead of them. Yeah, because his relationship with Prince Charles was sometimes complex, but we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. But as time went on and as um, the Queen's reign really began to gather its stride, Prince Philip had his causes and the things that he was really interested in and ways he could, yes, his was ultimately, and he always saw his primary role as to support the Queen in any way he could, but he had his causes, uh, British industry, the environment, young people, in particular the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme, which now exists in more than 140 nations, believe it or not. These were the causes closest to his heart. He talked about animal conservation in particular long before it became fashionable. And that made a huge difference, didn't it? I think it is important to stress that he believed in animal conservation. He was not a dreamer and he was not a theorist about climate and the like. Mm. Uh, in fact, I'm unaware of him taking a position on climate, although mm. he would not contradict his son. Mm. Yes. He believed in care and conservation of animals, but within an intelligent framework. And when you say he had his own causes, he also kept maintained his own luxuries in that he his abiding enthusiasm um, for polo continued until realistically he was much too old to be playing polo his 50th stage, birthday to be precise yeah at which stage he switched over more or less full time to coaching with four in hand coaches and coach racing yeah carriage driving to be precise and he pretty much invented it as the modern competitive sport that it is he pretty much wrote wrote the uh, the rule book on it and he he made it okay it had its a certain level of risk with it but it was something from the age of 50 it became a great passion of his for a very, very long time afterwards, and something that always did interest him uh, for the remainder of his life. Um, but in terms of the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme, there have been people, particularly from deprived areas and so forth, who've been speaking on television today, and they thank him in no uncertain terms for completely transforming their lives, because the Duke of Edinburgh award, uh, you know, there's different levels, silver, gold, and so forth. Um, it's about particularly outdoor activities, getting young people out. Initially, it was for boys. It's for boys and girls and has been for quite some time now. Getting them out and about, find things that focus them and get them disciplined, but also give them a sense of fun. And people have said this really is life-changing stuff. It's got them into good habits, good discipline, but also at the same time enjoying themselves. And he was a big believer in using the outdoors to motivate, discipline, and get young people into good habits. Oh, very much so. And also do bear in mind that that was a vaguely overlapping concept with the Boy Scouts and also the Outward Bound movement. Mm. 
yeah. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think also what became clear from the very earliest days um, of the Queen's reign and, and indeed before that is Prince Philip, right up until his retirement just a few years ago, was always a man on the go. He was moving from one thing to the next, the next engagement. He was a very hardworking man in the, the sheer number of charities. I think there was about 180 charities he was patron of. He was always opening things and meeting people, and he was a prolific reader. If he met you at a function, the chances are he'd read a book on it or had read up on it. He knew a lot and took an interest in everything he got involved with, and that was to his huge credit as well. It's something people who met him said about him. But 1979 then, the summer of 1979, Lord Mountbatten, his uncle, was murdered by the IRA um, when he was on holiday in the Republic of Ireland. He was murdered on a boat when a bomb exploded. It killed him and several others. Lord Mountbatten was 79 years of age at the time. That had a deep effect on Prince Philip and the entire royal family. But then we saw Prince Philip's qualities in that the, the two twin boys who, who were on there, one of them died and the other young boy, young Timothy, survived. And Timothy, in the weeks and months afterwards, Philip would take him fishing and they'd spend time outdoors together and he would listen to Timothy and be there for him, uh, understanding as best he could the significance of the loss he had experienced there. Um, perhaps that's something Prince Philip didn't have himself as a young man, but in his own way, he brought support the way he could to Timothy. And the family found him a good sounding board and conversations would be kept confidential. Um, there's a lot has been said about his relationship with Prince Charles, and he was asked about it in his 90th birthday interview. And he said that he is a loving man, he said, but he said, I am a pragmatist, Charles is a romantic, and romantics don't think that, think that pragmatists can't feel love. And I think Prince Philip was a very loving man, and I'll give you some examples of that. Well, I just did give you one example with the, the situation with young Timothy, but he had his own way of showing it, if that makes sense. Indeed, but do bear in mind that um, the agreement, the not necessarily agreement, uh, the tacit uh, agreement, should I say, between uh, Louis Mountbatten and Prince Philip, he may have stepped in to transfer, assist and support Timothy. But don't forget that Mountbatten was seen as an uncle to Charles and stepped in on many occasions to intercede for Charles. Hmm. So yeah. there was a great deal of reciprocity between the two men. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. And as things moved on then from there, uh, the 1990s in particular, and when I was growing up in the 1990s, it was a challenging decade for the royal family in many, many ways. We saw three of the four children's marriages failed. I know Anne's failed before that, but you know what I mean. There was the fire at Windsor Castle, um, the breakdown of Charles and Diana's marriage in particular, and then the death of Princess Diana. And what became clear is that for all his gruff exterior, Prince Philip did work very hard to 
try and aid things for Diana to try and keep her in the fold in some way. They wrote letters of great sympathy to one another. And also when she was killed, there was that scene on the day of her funeral where Prince William, who let's not forget was very young at the time, what was he, 14, I think, something like that, I'm not far out. Uh, he didn't think he could walk behind his mother's coffin. And Prince Philip said to young William, he said, if you don't do it, I think you will regret it. Let me walk with you and I'll be with you. We'll walk it together. And they did. And there was that very moving scene as they went under the archway at Marble Arch, I think it was, uh, may have been. And Prince Philip put his arm on uh, Prince William's back and it was that very moving moment. So whilst he may not have been great at the touchy-feely stuff, he was there in practical ways and he really did do his best for the family, I think. Oh, I think he was a, a very compassionate man. This is a man who had experienced incredible difficulties and hardship as a young man himself and had learned to stand on his own two feet as a result. He passed on that wisdom to his children. And as he walked down the mall with William at the funeral, you will have noticed that Harry was being shepherded and supported by Diana's brother mm. in that same very difficult walk. Mm. Mm. Both acquitted themselves excellently. They did not have the fibre of their grandfather to the same extent as shown in recent years with their, some of their re, more recent outpourings. Mm. But much of that backbone that they do have was put in there as a result of their grandfather more than any other single individual. I think so, yes. And that's something that sticks in my mind. But we got into the 2000s and there were happier times ahead. Uh, the Golden Jubilee of 2002 was a huge success. He remained very, very active as he got into his 80s and well into his 90s as well. Um, and th th there were many happy times ahead. And in terms of his relationship with Prince Charles, uh, we've already touched on uh, Philip the Pragmatist, Charles the Romantic. And whilst, again, there's often difficulties in families where there's different types of personalities, but... Prince Charles has spoken on TV this evening very warmly of his father. And I also think that there was also a turning point in 2012 of the Diamond Jubilee, where that, I actually didn't think it was very good, that river pageant they had when it just tipped down with rain. And maybe it's because I was watching on television, it wasn't a very good televisual experience, uh, all those little boats in the rain on the Thames. And um, Prince Philip was taken ill and he spent the remainder of the celebrations in hospital. And Prince Charles stepped up to the mantle, so to speak, and took charge of things. And he made that very warm speech on the stage that night and said, let's give my father a big cheer and he might be able to hear us from the hospital. Prince Philip wrote to Prince Charles after that and expressed his profound thanks at the way he handled it. And I gather that led to them developing a much closer relationship for most of the last decade, uh, just under a decade, as a result of that. So whilst, yes, there were personality differences, I do think Prince Charles greatly appreciated his father. 
I think Prince Charles is well aware that there have been many passages in his life where he would not have survived them without his father. Mm. Mm. His father did very much provide a guidance, a steering, and some um, fortitude that I think Charles would have found he was lacking in without his father. Yes, and I think that's come across with the tone of the tribute Prince Charles has paid in the short interview on television, and I'm expecting him to speak in more depth about that as time goes on. But in the time we've got left then, we can have a bit of fun with this because Prince Philip was a fun person. And this is something that comes across with people who met him. Um, as I say, said earlier on, he was very well prepared, but he did not suffer fools. And his so-called gaffes, and they're very, very well documented, his gaffes, they were very often just an attempt to put people at ease because he could walk into a room two steps behind the Queen and there could be two circles of people in a room or two semicircles. The Queen would go to one semicircle, Prince Philip would go to the other. And his, if you were on the other side of the room, the first one, the first thing you'd hear is laughter because you'd, you know, you'd have a semicircle of people, stiff, nervous, going to meet a member of the royal family. He'd say something funny and put everyone at their ease. Um, but also, if you made an absurd comment, you know, he, he, he didn't suffer fools in that sense, he would pull you up on it. But there's some very, very funny things he said over the years, Greg, to put people at their ease. Like, here we go. I'll just read a few of them out for now. A visit may to... I go on. First, never forget that he could also be a very hard man. He didn't take kindly to photographers. Well, even just a few years ago, we saw that, didn't, didn't we? When there was, um, what was it? Just before his retirement, he, uh, he he generally gave you four chances, uh, four clicks, and then he wanted to get up and move. But this photographer was faffing about and using some highly industrial language just a few years ago. He told him to get on with it. But here's a few gaffes for you, right? In Canada, 1969, I declare this thing open, whatever it is. <laughs> 1986, a World Wildlife Fund meeting. If it has got four legs and it is not a chair. If it has got two wings and it flies, but it's not an aeroplane. And if it swims and it's not a submarine, the Cantonese will eat it. <laughs> um, the Duke and Duchess of York, um, Sunning Hill Park, 1988. Um, they had plans for a house and he saw the plans. It looks like a tart bedroom, he said. 1995, he's in Scotland. He meets a driving instructor. How do you keep the natives off the booze long enough to get them through the test? Kenya, 1984. He accepts a small gift from a local woman. You're a woman, aren't you? <laughs> he wasn't sure. Um, there, there was a reception for British Indians, October 2009, so not too long ago. Buckingham Palace, um, British Indian community, October 2009, very well represented. And he looks at um, the name of a businessman, Atu Patel, sees the name on the name badge. There's a lot of your family in tonight. <laughs> to uh, the Patels. Um, and then when he met the then Scottish Conservative leader, Annabel Goldies in Edinburgh, September 2010, uh, was, was shown some tartan by Annabel Goldie. Do you have a pair of knickers made out of this? He said to her. 
And um, Sandringham, New Year's Eve 2017, sees a man with a beard in the crowd, points at him. Is that a terrorist? And on his, finally, on his own daughter, Princess Anne, if it doesn't fart or eat hay, she's not interested. So this is a man, Greg, who could put people at, an, at ease, not part of the woke generation, but a man of great sense of fun, I think. Uh, he was also somebody who hadn't got a racist bone in his body. Mm. Every yeah. comment that he made that people desperately tried to translate as racist was mm. said in humour with the person he was talking to or about, not at the person. Yes. I don't think there has ever been anyone who has taken offence at any comment he made, not even Alan Bolton, who asked a question of him on one occasion, and Prince Philip turned and said, that's a bloody stupid question, look it up in the brochure. <laughs> yeah, and, and Adam Bolton said, Adam Bolton said he had looked at the brochure, but he wanted Prince Philip to say it for the benefit of the viewers, but he came back at him with that very sharp remark. But the, the thing, you are right, because Prince Philip, whenever he made these remarks, they weren't gaps. It was his way of informally putting people at their ease and just having a little bit of fun with them along the way. Because one of his big achievements, we touched on it, and I think we could touch on it again now in a little bit of time we got left, and we are coming towards the end now, um, is that he did modernise the royal family. I, I talked about the coronation. There was that television documentary that was made um, showing day-to-day -day life of the royal family in the late 1960s. But he brought things forward, um, not only in the way the royal family operated, but in terms of giving public access and that little bit of informality while still having a sense of duty and service was to his credit. And perhaps the, one of the reasons he did get on with Diana and was always very fond with her is that 30 odd years later, when she came along, she also did that in her own way as well, modernized the royal family whilst respecting the life of duty and service. And I think he understood that. Um, but, I, you know, those words have come up a few times now, duty and service. And primarily, that was what Prince Philip was all about. And I think, Greg, in this age, and I know we, we talked about Harry and Meghan just a few weeks ago, those virtues of duty first, self second, which epitomized his life from beginning to end, are things that I fear the younger generation today um, not just the royal family, I'm not so much saying that about William and Kate, but I'm saying it about Harry and Meghan, but young people in general. Yes, I'm glad we can talk about things like mental health a bit more openly than we could in the past. And um, But I, I know this, this me, me, me generation that we have now, I think they could learn a lot from Prince Philip's example and his legacy. Especially when you think that Prince Philip did not hide his contempt for individuals, I well recall, because he was at Sandhurst at the same time as I, um, Princess Anne's husband, who Prince Philip called Foggy, and every, he was asked why he was called Foggy, and he said, because he's wet and extremely thick. <laughs> and Prince, Princess, um, the, queen, the Queen's sister, 
uh, Margaret. Margaret. Yeah. But I, I revert to Margaret rather than Princess. Um, her chosen husband, Tony Armstrong Jones, Prince Philip had little time for him and called him Jones the Palace because every time he turned round, there he was hanging about. Yeah, yeah. But here we are now then, and this is the final point I want to make, really. We're going slightly over time, but I don't care. Um, in terms of the Queen, something to bear in mind now, the Queen is now a widow, and we know, because she said it publicly more than once, the extent to which she relied on him for advice, support, and companionship, and he would be completely blunt and forthright with her as well. This will be an absolutely enormous loss for her, in terms of the continuation of her reign, and I know she's delegating a lot more these days to younger members of the royal family, but in terms of her reign, how do you think she'll make the adjustment? I don't think the public will notice it. She is somebody who was raised in duty, who has a greater depth of knowledge of democracy and world affairs than probably anybody else on the planet. Where I see difficulty on the horizon is particularly the position of young Harry, having made a ballistic ass of himself recently, mainly in my opinion due to his weakness in not speaking out against the nonsense his wife has been trying to peddle and the failure of duty of Oprah Winfrey to act as an interviewer and merely act as a presenter of a scurrilous press release I think Harry is in an incredibly difficult position and I feel very sorry for him. Well, yes, and we'll, the, yeah, we, we'll see how, how that does he not that funeral, How does he not? Yes, yeah, Both I, I, yeah. will be wrong. Yeah, and I, I think the most likely scenario, we'll have to see how this plays out in the days ahead, is that he will come back, but his wife will not. But we'll, we'll take that and see how it comes. But Greg, thank you for your time on this. It's been a fascinating 40 minute discussion. We barely scratched the surface of one of the things we could have talked, out, talked about, but an extraordinary life well lived. May he rest in peace. And again, our condolences to the Royal family. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time.